Anthony J. D'Angelo once said, Develop a passion for learning. If you do, you will never cease to grow. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy, and today we are doing DMing 103. Yep, this will be the third in our DMing series, as implied by the title. In this, we hope to give you some more of the tips, tricks, and understanding that we've developed as DMs and would like to share with you, presumably a DM that needs more information on DMing, which would be all DMs, ever, forever. Now, seeing as how this is DMing 103, this will be the end of the freshman course, and so we will be quizzing you throughout the episode. What does that mean? I don't know. Just a little side bit that John and I wanted to try out with this episode. Yeah, we're, we're trying to be experimental, uh, cutting-edge, avant-garde. So, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Our first piece of advice is use cheat sheets. Every DM, once they start understanding how to DM, immediately assume that they are the best DM ever. This is not true. Every DM has a way that they can grow, change, and be better. If you know what you need to work on, you can start having cheat sheets to work on your uh, bad parts. I mean, in 3.0, no one knew the rules for grappling. But if you had a cheat sheet for how grappling worked right there, you would save yourself five, ten minutes of having to look up the rules in the player's handbook. And yeah, we know the answer is avoid grappling as a general rule, but having that flowchart did mean that grappling became an option as opposed to something that was going to slow down the entire game to an absolute standstill. That was all it usually took to knock people out of that whole problem of not being able to visualize how grappling works. And if you're aware of the parts of the game you struggle with, you can create cheat sheets that are going to specifically play to those parts. For some of us, that's going to be the really obvious stuff, and there's nothing wrong with that. If you have to have a cheat sheet that tells you that in D&D 5th edition, surprised is a condition and not something that gives you an extra round of combat, that's a fine cheat sheet to have. It's good that you have that information in front of you. If your cheat sheets need to be a little more esoteric, that's fine as well. When I was running Werewolf the Forsaken, I had a cheat sheet that had the spirit names of all of the major werewolf totems. And the reason I needed this is because it was information that I'd always have to look up because I'm not going to memorize a list of weird names I almost never use. I mean, there's no point in memorizing that. It's not something I'm going to be using constantly. And when I need it, it can be right there. It was frequent and important enough that I should have that information at my fingertips but not something that I naturally memorized as part of the game. And my favorite Albert Einstein quote, which I am terrible at following, is never memorize what you could look up. I personally like having rules that I constantly look up right on the inside of my DM screen. I have all the status effects for 5th edition right on the inside of my GM screen. I have what are commonly used bonus actions. I have a one-page handout for what a player character can do on their turn. And while I rarely need these, every now and then I'll have someone go, Hey, what type of an action is it to drink a potion? Uh, oh, that's a full action there. It's not a bonus action. And knowing what you're bad at is a great way of making your cheat sheets. If, for example, you know that there's a rule that you're particularly bad at, write it down. The simple act of writing it down might make you remember it 
more. One last quick note about this is something that almost everyone struggles with is coming up with compelling NPCs off the cuff. And the advice you see almost everywhere exists for a reason, because it's good advice. That advice is have lists available. You don't want to name every one of your NPCs Frank O'Malley or the dreaded Babo the Gabo or whatever. You don't want to be falling back on extremely cliche names, John Smith and such. So have a list of names prepared. Uh, Surnames are good to have as well. First names, uh, you might want to put check marks next to ones you use because it can help you uh, keep that organized. But the point is to have that list. Another thing you might want a list of is quirks for those NPCs, something that sets them apart. Having those lists can go a long way toward making these particular aspects of your game more compelling and is exactly the sort of thing that we're talking about when we talk about use cheat sheets for things that will benefit from using cheat sheets. So we have our first pop quiz. Come up with a good NPC. As John said, we want you to have a list of 50 to 100 character names just right there. Just have it in front of you and quickly go. Uh, we have Stephen Merchant. He is an amiable town guard who is very open about what he knows and what he finds, even if he's talking to people who are not part of the city guard. That said, he can be lazy sometimes. That right there is a good, solid NPC, and I was just looking at a, at a sheet right here in front of me and picking random personality traits. Yeah, no, it's a great way of doing things, and uh, this answer is quite satisfactory. I would definitely give this student an A, and the great thing about this is this is the sort of compelling character that your players might absolutely obsess over and completely derail the game to continue to go after. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that means you're doing things right. Moving on to our second point. Have a GM screen. That sounds like an extremely straightforward, physically applicable, objective piece of advice. That's crazy. Everything else has been pretty much abstracts up till this point. Yeah, when I first started being a DM, I refused to have a GM screen. I had this thought in my head of, no, I have no secrets from my players. But as I've advanced as a DM, I realize, yeah, I do. I, I really do. I have little notes that I'm taking about things that they say. I have notes about what might be coming up. I might be hiding miniatures and props that I will surprise the players with. And the biggest one is there's a lot of times that I'll fudge dice rolls for the sake of the story. Yeah, and it's kind of embarrassing to be rolling a die and then following it with your hand, as I remember you doing back when we ran World of Darkness. You'd throw down the dice and immediately have your hands in front of them to make sure that none of us could spot the roll. Because you might be fudging a roll, or you might be just doing a roll in secret, where you don't want the player characters to know the likely outcome of the roll. I mean, if it comes up a natural 20, they know what happened. You can't really double-talk your way out of that one. I do want to reiterate, though, when we're talking about fudging rolls, that sometimes not fudging the roles, even when it seems like fudging the roles would serve the point of the story, can often make for a really compelling game where something absolutely shakes up the situation. I think I might have told this anecdote before, but back when I was in high school playing in some of my early games, there's a scene in Dragonlance where there's a dragon with his two illusory dragon sidekicks who 
who are unkillable in the sense that killing them doesn't end the encounter. If you kill the main dragon, whose identity is secret, you do defeat that dragon and then just have to deal with his minions. But defeating one of the illusory dragons just removes an illusory dragon. Well, my players ran in, and at the time I was using the old double critical rule from uh, early 3rd edition that was kind of house ruled by a lot of people, where if you roll two natural 20s in a row and then confirm the critical, it's an automatic kill. One of my players did this and chose the right dragon when they decided arbitrarily which dragon to throw their axe at. And I decided, for whatever reason, that instead of fudging the roll or moving things around, shuffling out that dragon, that I would let them have it. They could just kill this dragon. Fantastic. And it's still one of the most memorable things of that campaign. Ask any of my players like, what do you remember from that campaign? They're like, then Nathan killed a dragon in a single attack. It was incredible. You know, just just a reminder. But that doesn't mean you should never fudge dice rolls. And it doesn't mean you should never swap out the dragon. Honestly, it probably would have been a pretty incredible fight if I had swapped out the dragon. But would it have been as memorable? Would it have been the same story? Would it have been the time that the players foiled the DM's plans, and then on top of it, the DM didn't fake his way out of it? No, it wouldn't have been any of those things. But we need to have those secrets in order to have those opportunities. And to keep those secrets, we need a GM screen. One of the things that I like to hide behind my GM screen are little beat notes for the story that's going on. One of my dirty little secrets. I love to end my sessions on a cliffhanger. If we do that, the next session is going to open up strong, and the player characters are more likely to remember what's happening here. And, I mean, every good novel uses this. At the end of each chapter, it ends with, Oh my goodness, the vault is opening! Well, as a reminder, not necessarily even just good novels. I really did not like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, but I could not put that book down. I don't think I've read a book so quickly in my life because every chapter ended on a hard cliffhanger. Like, oh no, I just realized. End of chapter. Or who's this around the corner? End of chapter. Every single time somebody was gasping at what they saw and was about to have that described to us when the chapter ended. So even though it really wasn't my favorite book, it was a heck of a page turner. So try to keep that idea in your games too, because it's great. And another great way to do that is to have everything spread out where you can see it and access it easily. And one great way to do that is to have a GM screen. We stand by the GM screen advice. You should have some sort of GM screen. All right, pop quiz. So, you as the GM have a great story, you are planning out these great battles, and you have wonderful NPCs that are coming up. The next question you need to ask yourself is, how are you having fun? Are you having fun? Moreover, are your players having fun? If you as the GM are having fun, but you can't really see your players having fun, maybe you're not running a good game. And meanwhile, if your players all seem to be having a good time, but you are miserable, why are you doing that to yourself? Find a way to celebrate with them and to enjoy the game with them. 
that's a big part of why we do this is to have some sort of enjoyment. And maybe it's not going to be the happy, gleeful joy of a child playing with a new toy. Maybe it's going to be the more adult joy of having the satisfaction of a job well done or of entertaining your friends. The afterglow of a party where you're picking up all of the junk and popcorn and stuff off of the floors and cleaning up and thinking to yourself, what a lovely party that was, even though now you've got the drudgery ahead. That's the sort of thing that you can sometimes step on. But most of the time, you're going to want to be having fun right alongside them. So everyone should be enjoying themselves. Our next rule is realism isn't consistency and neither consistency or realism is automatically a good thing. A lot of people who are into simulationist games are going to want to stone me for this, but realism isn't automatically consistent and it's also not automatically good. Also, realism is literally a thing we can't actually have, not in any physical objective sense, because what I always find when people strive for realism in their games is that they'll zero in on a specific type of scenario they think is realistic, but then they'll leave these big dead angles in that, things that they just aren't anticipating or thinking about as far as what's realistic. A great example of this is the game Twilight 2000, a relatively old school RPG. And it's been a long time since I've looked at the rules, but I remember specifically that one of the major hallmarks of the game is that young characters tend to be more physically fit and in better shape, but older characters tend to be more experienced and have all the skills that you actually need to survive, be it civil engineering or medicine. And speaking of medicine, if you do the math on the character creation method of the game, the only way to be a doctor is to have your character advance about 36 years forward. So the 36-year-old character, which is not realistic, despite the fact the whole idea behind this system is realism. But there are doctors under 36 years old who are practicing physicians to say nothing of interns who are also doctors. I find that the best way to make your game good is to be excited about your game. If you are excited about your game, your players will be excited about their about your game. Who cares that it's a superhero game where everyone is flying around town and even the mayor is a superhero? He's the super bureaucrat. <laughs> it doesn't matter. If you are having fun, your players will have fun. If you are excited, your players will be excited. Love your villains. Make them villainous. Make Make sure that you care about your villain, your players will care about your villain. If you care about your setting, your players will care about your setting. All of that is a better way to make your game good than to hang your hat on this idea of realism. In fact, most of the time when I've played with people who are really strong on this idea of realism, they're really doing it to try and go, oh, all of these other games are just playing pretend in fantasy. Here's the secret. All games are playing pretend in fantasy. We're all trying to uh, play these games as a form of escape. That's the whole point of a game. And regardless of what game you're playing, you're going to have that one break from reality that makes it an interesting game. Even in the most modern game with the most modern whatever, you're probably playing out a hypothetical situation that could probably never happen in the real world or is extremely unlikely to happen. But more often than not, we're always falling back on that the one exception for the premise rule that every piece of fiction follows. 
that if your game is about vampires, we all immediately accept out, out of hand that vampires exist and are real. Or if your game is about aliens, we all accept out of hand that aliens exist and are real. But if your game about vampires suddenly has aliens in it, you're kind of double dipping. And that's where you start to get a problem. When we talk about realism, we're often just talking about consistency. We want a game world that makes sense within the bounds of that game world. Because we all have that one break for our unrealistic aspect. D&D has magic and also people who inexplicably walk away after decades and decades of war and violence with nothing but a few minor battle scars to show for for it despite the massive amounts of PTSD and crippling injuries they would probably carry with them for the rest of their lives. But that's not a fun game. I don't want to play that game. Yeah, maybe as a one-off, but certainly not as a long ongoing adventure where my character just gets more and more maimed as he goes along. Ugh, it sounds like Warhammer. All right, pop quiz. The player characters are going through this large ship and they keep hearing rustling and moving down below. They go down into the hold, and there's a giant monster. What monster is in the bottom of the boat? Well, I mean, you probably want to go with an aquatic monster, or a monster with some sort of boat-based behavior, and oh wait, no, that's not the answer. No, the answer is any monster you want. Especially if you just retheme them as an aquatic or nautical creature. Oh my goodness, here is a huge monster that's going to charge at us, and uh, when it hits us, it's going to hit us with the force of a tidal wave. Yeah, it might just be a reskinned minotaur, but it, no, it's clearly a water monster. Right. I think that's one of the things that D&D 3rd Edition never really talked about the way it needed to about its templating rules. See, it had all these templates like aquatic creature, lizard creature, whatever, you know, just creature that is also this. And they would always give these examples of a creature that's literally the creature from the book with this on it. And what they really should have done is said, look at how we make this completely new monster by taking this old monster and putting this template on it, you know. Having a water lizard man, for example, shouldn't just make a water lizard man. It should make like a salamander person or uh, some sort of other aquatic thing. Or maybe remove the intelligence completely and make it just a monster that is a mindless creature that exists to fight, eat, and kill. In any case, your palette swapping doesn't need to be limited to just saying this is X version of this monster. You can take a monster that looks one way and make it look a completely different way without ever changing any of the underpinning rules. In a recent game I ran, people would go into this abandoned orphanage, and there at the end of a long hallway is the caretaker of the orphanage, who would point at them and go, you're out of your rooms. And then his hands would fall off as a swarm of hands would come running toward them, and his mouth would distend into this giant maw. And this is a terrifying creature whose stats are literally the same as a roper from the 5th edition Monster Manual. Yeah, but I would have never guessed that the original monster that he took the rules from was tree-shaped. That would not have occurred to me, because all I know is it's trying to pull me into its maw, and it's mostly stationary. I never even considered the possibility that it was completely stationary, or almost completely stationary, even though it probably was, because once again, you just reskinned the monster. Having said that, it certainly made for a compelling encounter, it worked really well, and all it took was a quick reskin of an existing monster and moving it completely outside of its element. 
So what's next? The next rule we have is use your senses. This is mostly for descriptions. If you're describing a room, describe that it's cold. Describe that it smells weird. Describe that there are odd sounds knocking against the walls. Even if you don't want to add to your descriptions, make sure that climatic moments have a sensory interaction for the players. If you have an interesting boss, find a good picture online and show this picture to the players going, this is what they look like. If you're good at drawing, draw up the enemy. If you want to set a mood, light some scented candles, turn the lights down low. Now you're in a monastery. If you're about to have a big boss, Turn on some boss music. Having some way to engage the character's senses in additional ways will make your game more immersive and a better experience. Remember that this is not just something that you can do in the physical world, but also in the theater of the mind. We all have an enormous bank of experiences we can call upon, and where you can, it works to evoke things that you know have certain effects on people. You know, when we think of the smell of moss and fungus, we immediately think dirty and dank. That's all it takes. You know, you smell mildew and you know a lot about your environment just based on that. These sort of things can have emotional effects on players that are easily recognized. Remember that we want to often lead players to certain emotional resonances with locations and scenes and descriptions, but it usually is best to not tell them how they feel, short of some sort of compulsion, supernatural or otherwise, you know? Being hit with a fear wave from a dragon, yeah, you should absolutely describe the sudden cortisol rush of terror and the blood running out of all of their extremities and all that because they are having an involuntary terror reaction that doesn't have anything to do with their character's proclivity to be afraid or not be afraid. If you just want the environment to be dark and foreboding, you can say the environment is dark and foreboding. You might even suggest that it's creepy or that the groaning creaks cause your hair to stand up on end. But don't tell the players how their characters feel because their character might have an idiosyncratic response to the situation. And that's neat. And that's an experience the player gets to dictate. Do encourage your players to tell you about their emotions and their character's emotions because that's a lot of fun. It's a big part of the game. And it builds immersion in a way that I don't feel a lot of other things can. One last little aside I want to put here. If you're using big flowery descriptions for NPCs, and if you describe every single female and how they are dressed, make sure that you describe how the men are dressed as well. Otherwise, you're being sexist. Yeah, even if you're just enthusiastic about really gorgeous dresses, because, oh my gosh, who isn't? But even then, you should be still bringing up the fashion decisions of the men present and others who choose to avoid dresses for whatever reason, everybody should get a chance to know what everybody looks like. I mean, maybe the Queen of Winter does have the most exquisite, extravagant ball gown, and we do need to describe that. But then your buddy Jack over here comes in disheveled in his goodwill suit, you know? That deserves a description, too, and it builds a different sort of mood, especially as a contrast against the other one. Don't give up on those things just because you think that certain elements are more flashy or exciting, because 
the elements that aren't flashy or exciting make a backdrop for the elements that are flashy and exciting. And also don't be sexist. Like seriously, just give everybody their time in the light and don't shine it too brightly on anyone. Actually, that that leads into our next thing really, really well. And I'm, I'm just going to completely skip the pop quiz here. Pop quiz? No, no, we're, we're skipping the pop quiz because this last point is... This has kind of been sticking in my craw for a little while, so I, I, I do want to uh, talk about this. Know your players' limits and boundaries. We've talked about consent in gaming and creating comfortable, safe environments and things like that before. And we will talk about it again because it's incredibly important. Our hobby has not always been as inclusive as it is. Used to be jokes about, you know, girls don't play games. Well, a big part of the reason girls didn't play games is because dudes drove them out of games. And they did that by being insensitive and unnecessarily insulting towards those women for no reason. For the reason of wanting to have their good old boys club. And that's not how we play. That's not how we should play. We want this to be an inclusive experience because the more people who are involved, the more interesting our stories get. And that's great. To that end, there are a lot of resources you can use to make sure that everyone is having an informed, consensual experience that they will genuinely enjoy. The first thing we want to talk about is the X card. The X card is just a card that you have in the middle of the table with a big X on it that any person can reach out and touch and immediately end the scene or divert it away from what's being talked about. Sometimes people can't fully verbalize what is exactly upsetting them about a scene or an encounter, but if they reach out and tap the X card, you know that you probably want to stop describing the way that this orc is mutilating the peasants' bodies, even if it's just something minor. Even if it's a description of, oh, and there are cobwebs hanging all over the room, and someone reaches out and touches the X card. Maybe they have severe arachnophobia, and they don't want you to go down that way. Well, it's okay. There are no spiders in this room. Fine. There, there are no cobwebs. It's just a dusty room. And even if there is a spider enemy, maybe it's just a large, slightly alien dog instead. You have options. You are in full control of your world, and that means you should be able to provide a comfortable world for everyone, which doesn't necessarily mean no negative emotions. We all enjoy, to some degree or another, experiencing negative emotions in a safe context. Otherwise, movies would all be just happy fun time with everybody having a good time. We all prefer films that have conflict and drama, which are negative things, which leave us feeling sad or scared or concerned or confused. All of those are negative emotions, and we all want to experience those emotions in safe places to some degree or another. Let's do that. And in order to do that, we have to know where our lines are drawn, where we have problems. There's a wonderful resource that was recently published called Consent in Gaming, written by Sean K. Reynolds and Shanna Germain. This is a wonderful little PDF, completely free to download, that gives you an idea of why consent in gaming is important and how to ask your players what exactly is their line, what are their limits. It even comes with a wonderful form-fillable one-page sheet that the player characters can fill out and go, yes, I want this in my game. No, I don't want this in my game. Yes, I'm okay with this, but only kind of. 
John, you have the sheet over there in front of you. What what are some of the things that it covers? I sure do. A few of the things on here are under the horror entry. There's bugs, eyeballs, and harmed children. All things that can be very triggering for some people. Really serious childhood or adult traumas can rotate around these things. And we don't want to hurt our friends or even just people we happen to be playing with at a convention. And knowing what will hurt them is the first step to not hurting them. And also the first step to knowing what boundaries we can push and where we can go in order to get our fear. Under relationship, romance, there's an entry for just fading to black, which is what a lot of people do when you have some sort of romantic or sexual scene. It's sort of like the old movies where they show a train going into a tunnel to let us know what the good folks were about right now. But they're not actually showing us the scene, you know. Um, Again, sex has its own entry for this, which is separate from romance, we should add. Um, It's actually an important distinction because some people are uncomfortable with uh, romance and emotional attachments between characters. And some people are comfortable with that to every degree, but really don't want to hear about characters having sex at all. It's completely different things. Social and cultural issues, real-world religion. We might be uncomfortable having our religion or even the religions of others mentioned directly in our game. And getting away from real-world religion can be a good way of avoiding that. And then finally, under mental and physical health, lots of things here. And these are all things that people might have personal experience with and therefore be actually connected to and even if they're not you know these things can be latent fears a way long ways away from people but still have a profound effect on them cancer claustrophobia heat stroke paralysis or physical restraint pregnancy miscarriage or abortion self-harm all of these things can be really serious triggers for people that can genuinely hurt them and and cause serious trauma to resurface we don't want to hurt our friends we don't want to hurt the people we play games with and having a checklist like this is a way of making sure we don't do that and maybe you're with a group you've been playing with forever you know how long have we been playing together jeremy oh geez that was 2004 2005 so almost oh wow yeah really long time 15 years about 15 years we've been playing together and i think that I know everything that would actually cause you serious distress in a game. I think you probably know everything that would cause me serious distress in a game. So we probably don't need a consent checklist like this. But having said that, maybe for whatever specific game we we want to play, we want to know what we're getting into. We want to know what to expect from it. Again, a checklist like this, even if we knew all of each other's limits, might be a good way for us to say, this is what I want to see in this game. And this is what I really don't want to see in this game. This is what I want to play. Maybe I don't want to play a game with genocide, even though genocide doesn't particularly frighten me on a personal level. It's still something that I'm appalled with. And maybe I don't want all of my games to feature it as a backdrop. Or maybe I'm just really not feeling up to anything romantic in this game. I just want it to be a hack and slash game. Can we draw a hard limit on that? I'd appreciate it. It's not necessarily the same thing. It might even be helpful to express that, yeah, I'm just saying that I don't want this element versus this is a serious traumatic thing to me. But then on top of it, we should not be asking people to explain and justify their traumas to us. If somebody says they don't want something in a game, let's not play that game. Maybe 
there might be circumstances where it's okay to explore what they're feeling and why. But that's if you're close friends. That's if this is something that you want to understand about your friend that you think they would feel free to share with you. Not something to drag out in front of your gaming group in the middle of a game. So if somebody says they don't want an element in your game, take them at their word, believe your players, and accept that whatever they don't want, they have reasons for not wanting it. Let it go. In our DMing 101 episode, our 10th rule, one of the most important rules that we have ever had, is Wheaton's Law. Don't be a dick. This rule right here of knowing your player's limits and boundaries is a specific application for it, and probably the biggest application of it that we can possibly think of. Don't traumatize your friends. You're here to have fun. You're here to escape from your real life, even just the mundanities of life. Don't be a dick. And as one final reiteration on this point, remember that we bleed emotion into our characters and our characters bleed their emotions into us. When we connect to a character, when they become distressed, we feel distress. And when we are distressed, we will play them with some aspect of our distress in them. This is what makes gaming such a naturally therapeutic yet enjoyable activity because it's an opportunity for us to vent and experience emotions and situations that we don't get to experience in our day-to-day life because one of the great tragedies of being a human being is that you only really get to do it once. All right, so that was our DMing 103. Your freshman course is over. The next time we do a DMing episode, it will be DMing 201 and be giving more advanced rules. So what do we have up next? Uh, Up next, we were hoping to discuss two-player board games. Uh, The dual-type board game, where you're only playing against one other player and there's no opportunity for distractions from that single-minded focus on your one opponent. It should be an interesting discussion. All right. So, once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. Tell me and I forget. Teach me and I remember. Involve me and I learn. Benjamin Franklin. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.